0: Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a production from Melbourne's leading independent bookstore, Readings Books and Music. In today's episode, an interview with Polly Barton, writer and translator. Barton is the author of two books of non-fiction, 50 Sounds from 2021, and Porn, An Oral History, published this year. Barton has also translated numerous works of fiction from Japanese into English, including Miyako Kanai's Mild Vertigo and Kukiko Sumura's, There's No Such Thing as an Easy Job, with more to come. I began our discussion by asking Barton where the idea originated to write her most recent book, Porn and Oral History.
1: I feel like the idea occurred in several stages. Mid-pandemic, I was asked by my agent, I'd, I'd recently got an agent so it was a new a new thing to have an agent asking me these things and she said what do you think your next book might be about and it was funny for me because with 50 sounds I really felt like I'd kind of exhausted pretty much everything that I had to say about myself about life about what I knew about and I'd kind of been thinking that that was it you know I would be a kind of a one-trick pony and then I sort of almost just found myself saying on this phone call like I want to write about porn and I think my agent was quite taken aback and I think I was actually quite taken aback but I guess as I thought over it more and more, I realized like this was something that had been festering as a topic of interest and concern for a long time. And I think probably there was something around the craziness of the the pandemic and this sense that like everything was sort of being turned on its head. And, you know, a lot of, social etiquette was being thrown out the window and people were sort of in the face of death feeling a lot closer I guess in lots of ways there was this more pressing sense of okay well let's talk about you know the things that really matter even if it is kind of uncomfortable and so that was I think where the idea came from initially the idea being to speak to lots of people about their relationships with porn. But at that stage, I didn't really know what I was going to do with those conversations. You know, I I, I understood that having the conversations was what the book would be about and that, that that sort of journey, I guess, to use a very horrible and cliched word within me, that was what I wanted to write about. But I think at that time, my sort of default assumption was like, well, you know, it's a nonfiction, it's going to be a nonfiction book. So therefore I have to write it up as polished essays, possibly with lots of quotes from friends. And I think it was... Once I started having those conversations and once I started transcribing them, that my sense of what this could and should be, the form that it should take, really started becoming much clearer. You know, that, that this really, like, these people's voices needed to be on the page. And while I would still be there in the sense of, like, the through line running through the whole thing it couldn't all be framed from my perspective. You know, I needed to kind of really represent that diversity of voice and experience in a more immediate way, I guess.
0: Definitely. For those who are unfamiliar with the book, the book is these series of conversations edited down, but very much just as a back and forth. And it is a really, really diverse bunch of people in the sense of their ages, their backgrounds, their gender and sexuality. Their race. And because they are so broad, the responses you get in these conversations that are somewhat anonymized mean that they're speaking in a way about these things that I feel like I don't feel like I've ever encountered with people writing about this before. And it's not just that it's novel in that regard, but it's really compelling and fascinating to take in as a volume. I would like to know how you went about approaching people to do this, because I imagine that it would be quite confronting i know there's there's one thing that's confronting about pitching and writing a book about porn but then there's another thing about reaching out to people and be like do you want to tell me about your use of pornography (laughs)
1: yes (laughs) this was a worry of mine um and i thought about that and and Explicitly in those terms, actually, you know, I I thought to myself, like, what is the least confronting way that I can do this? And what I settled on was sending out a kind of mass email to friends and, yeah, like you say, sort of friends and acquaintances of like varying degrees of intimacy, I suppose, with everyone just on BCC, the title of the email was a request. And I basically said, this is the situation. I'm thinking I want to write about porn. And for that purpose, I want to have conversations with people that I will record. I'm imagining them very much as conversations, you know, something reciprocal, as opposed to me sitting there and asking you to tell me in a very one-sided way about your, you know, masturbation habits and stuff. And, you know, it, totally no pressure, like, don't reply if you don't want to. This is just if you feel like this is something you would be open to. And everyone replied and almost everyone said yes, with varying degrees of hesitancy. You know, some people were kind of like, yeah, absolutely. I was talking to someone about this the other day that, you know, just about how much it's never spoken about. And I'd love to talk about it. And other people said, I mean, you can talk to me, but I don't have anything to say or any opinions. And other people said, I'm not sure, but I'll think about it. You know, all of which feel like very generous responses. So that was the first cohort and and it was from that pool that i did the first few chats and then the final ones came through other sources mostly so there was one who a friend introduced me to as someone that i might like to speak to and there was there was someone who i i sort of knew a little bit but i hadn't initially sent the email out and then we actually just ended up having a porn chat (laughs) on a walk that we took in a very spontaneous way with me recording it on my phone you know it felt really important like you say not intimidate people and yet at the same time I also felt that I needed to ask even those people who I sensed might not want to do it you know even those people that I felt a kind of internal reluctance towards asking because I feel like with this stuff you know it's not that it's never spoken about but the people who do speak about it and who volunteer to speak about it in my experience at least like I feel like those kind of people aren't necessarily all heavy users of porn but for whatever reason they have like done a lot of work around it and a lot of the sort of moving through that discomfort already you know and and I think part of the thing with this project was that I wanted to step into that discomfort that I felt with other people who were also feeling that you know so it felt really important to approach people who weren't naturally the kinds of people you would imagine sitting with and talking about for
0: yeah, the point you raise about people who, as you say, volunteer themselves to be critiquing pornography within its place within society might discuss things like feminism, misogyny, patriarchy, which are all valid concerns and topics. What was really interesting about this book was for me that the one thing that's missing so much in these conversations when other people talk about these things is about the self and about shame in particular. And I think this book... In a really nice way. It's not like it's pursuing shame as a a key component from the outset, but it's what people go to when they're given that space and they're not intimidated and they can just speak to their own experience. It's wrapped up in all of these things. In the afterword or the epilogue to the book, you speak to things or observations or thoughts that occurred to you once you'd completed the work. So I'd be really interested to know do you still engage with this topic?
1: That's a really good question. First of all, can I just say that I really, really appreciate what you said about shame. You know, I I feel like this is something that really, really fascinates me. And, you know, it's well known, I think, that shame breeds best in the silence. And that that then serves as a real vicious circle, you know, that we... We are shameful about something, so we don't speak about it. And then the more we don't speak about it, the more we don't have tools for speaking about it. And we feel ashamed to even speak badly about these things, you know, so it becomes this kind of real compendium of of different kinds of shame. And I think that my sense is that a lot of the desire for the polemic direction that these conversations end up taking a lot of the time Is in a way a defense mechanism, right? It's like if we get so into the politics and the intellectual aspects of it, and so into our kind of feelings of rage and anger and so on and so forth, the more kind of explosive feelings, we don't have to confront that shame. And obviously, that's not me saying that I don't think there's room for that kind of intellectual debate and actually the kind of the political and ethical aspects of porn really, really fascinate me. But I I wanted to make sure that this book did more than just obscuring the personal details and looking, you know, taking a sort of a wide view. And actually sort of so then to come round to the next part of your question, one of the things that I did while I was having the conversations was deliberately not read too much around the subject you know like I went into this book not knowing anything really about you know the theory that exists around the topic of porn in all its facets and that was mostly because I wanted to make sure that I was on a similar sort of level as my interlocutors you know it didn't feel fair for me to kind of do all the homework secretly and then go into the conversations and be like oh well you know Dworkin said this or what whatever so during the chats I was sort of mostly going off just what I had read coincidentally but once I finished the book I did allow myself to start reading some of the theory and yeah I mean It's so fascinating to me, this topic. Like it's really just feels so rich and so tied to so many other things, you know, like the the real big stuff like capitalism, patriarchy, the internet, feminism, pleasure, shame, desire. It feels like it, you know, it really sits at sort of the intersection of those issues. So I am continuing to engage with it but i don't yet know what form that engagement will take in terms of my creative output if it takes any you know i i feel like there's so many more people that i want to talk to and in a way i would just love to do porn too i feel like a really crucial constraint in a way for this book was the fact that i went into it being like embarrassed and <laughs> scared and knowing nothing and you know I still have elements of all of those things but I think I'm I'm definitely less sort of embarrassed than I was and I'm not sure for that reason I would be able to have the same kinds of conversation so I think were I to do something else it would need to take a slightly different form.
0: Yeah I I definitely understand what you mean. I would love to also take a pivot and talk to you about your practice as a translator as well, if I could. How did you become involved in working as a translator? And like, what does that look like as your part of your creative work on the day-to-day?
1: Um, okay, let me try and do a, a, a very long story condensed into a very short, pressy. I did a philosophy degree at University. And after I graduated, I immediately enrolled on a teaching program in Japan, on a small island in Japan. And I went there speaking no Japanese. And that was a kind of baptism by fire, I guess. And I really spent a lot of time learning Japanese on the island in the teacher's room where I was working. And then when I went back to the UK, I began working in a Japanese, very small Japanese food publishing company as the only non-Japanese person there. And because I was the only non-Japanese person there, they very soon started asking me to translate. And I was 100% not good enough at Japanese to be translating at that point. I was really looking up, you know, every other word in the dictionary, but kind of got this very visceral sense very quickly, like, okay, this is like, this is for me, you know, this is me writing, but also learning so much Japanese at the same time. And and obviously reading can be a very kind of deep and intimate experience but i feel like the kind of reading you're doing when you're translating you just go so far in and all of that just just really appealed so i did a masters in translation and then i took a job at a games company in house and then afterwards freelance and sort of since that point i've been i would say making the transition from being a fully commercial translator to being a literary translator. And I think this is pretty much the first time in my life where I'm more or less only doing literary fiction. I mean, I also do writing and and do some kind of teaching as well, so that it's not that that takes up 100% of my working time, but I've more or less graduated from doing commercial stuff. I don't know how long that well, last and actually sort of latterly, the kinds of I say commercial, but what I was translating was mostly sort of art-related, which I loved doing and which felt like a really nice contrast from from the literary stuff. So, you know, if I if I did have to go back to that, I wouldn't be remotely sad. But for the moment, yeah, it is it is more or less just books.
0: The most recent one I read that you translated was um, Mild Vertigo, which is a fascinating book. It's not yet published in Australia, but it will be coming out shortly as a Fitzcarraldo edition. And that book is like quite astonishing in its its text, in both the content of the text, the narrative, but also in the way that it flows. Literally, just these unbroken sentences just for paragraphs and pages. It's both... Very, very funny, but it's also this story is deeply psychologically fascinating. Because this text is so bizarre to take in as English, as a translator, what did this text appear like and what does it look like in Japanese? And how did you go about interpreting that and then bringing it into English?
1: I would say it it mostly appears the same, which is not to say that (laughs) translating it was straightforward. Because the way that speech is attributed and and all of that kind of stuff is, is very different in Japanese. So there was a lot of rejigging. But in terms of, you know, like the first sentence, which is five pages long and, you know, there's times within that where you're like wait a minute who's doing what who's like where's who what that's very much the same you know that's that is the reading experience in Japanese and I felt very clear going into this that I needed to prioritize that sense of chaos when I was translating it you know there have been other translations of Mia Kokanai's work, and some of them have taken the approach of, of simplifying a lot more, breaking up, you know, making sort of the dialogue appear separately on the page, and so on and so forth. But with this book, someone recently wrote to me and said... It's less a stream of consciousness and more a torrent of consciousness, which yeah. I absolutely love. It's sort of like a, a violence almost to its <laughs> fluidity and chaos. Yeah, I, I felt like it was very, very important to preserve that because that was, in a way, the most striking thing about it, I think. And it just connects so intricately with what the book is doing right and, and and saying about our society and the kind of the state that late capitalist living kind of pushes us into that felt really hard and what I guess is is tricky is getting that balance right in a way right because you want to preserve that chaos but you can't take it too far because you need the reader also to be propelled along. I think when it gets too incomprehensible, people are just lost and that actually detracts from the compulsiveness of the reading experience. So it, it was about finding it, finding a balance.
0: Given that you have this, um, this experience in translating Japanese fiction, do you know of books that are in the world of Japanese literary fiction that have not yet been translated into English that you feel like a real secret gems that the rest of us are missing out on?
1: Yeah. I mean, there's so much, there's so much that hasn't been translated, particularly, I would say, work from maybe, you know, 10 or more years ago. Just because right now, Japanese literature is obviously extremely hot, but that's a relatively recent state of affairs and you know 10 years ago it really was sort of the market was dominated by Murakami um and and now publishers not all publishers but a lot of publishers tend to want the stuff that has won you know the Akutagawa last year or this year the really sort of hot off the press stuff so I think that there's a lot of gems that exist From, yeah, sort of like early, early 2000s, late 20th century.
0: And maybe one last question for you, if I could. Can I ask what you're reading at the moment?
1: I just finished an advance proof of a book that is coming out early next year from Counterpoint called A Woman of Pleasure, which is about an oiran, a courtesan kind of high-ranking courtesan in the early 20th century in Kyushu. I was I was interested in reading that because I'm also currently translating a book about the red light district um after the war. So slightly different time period, but I was I was interested to see how that was translated beautifully, as it turns out, by Juliet Winters Carpenter. And then I'm I'm just about to jump on a plane actually to melbourne and i um have just downloaded the latest is mother dead so that's on my kindle now which i'm very very excited about because i'm a huge fan of hers
0: polly it's really great that you could speak to me today about your work and i look forward to your event at the wheeler center next week i think it'll be really fantastic
1: thank you so much for having me it's been a pleasure
0: thanks so much porn and oral history and 50 sounds are both available from all reading stores as well as a slew of pardons translated works including aoko matsuda's where the wild ladies are and tomoko shibasaki's spring garden you can also find them on our website where you can stream previous episodes of the readings podcast you'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books music film and tv you can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly newsletter the readings monthly Readings podcast is produced by me, Nico Kelly. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of this show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge traditional owners of this land and pay earnest respects to elders past, present and those to come. Thank you.